introduced 1 Thessalonians, and so that's where we will uh, pick up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this evening. Have you ever received thanks for something that you didn't do? When I uh, worked in accounting full-time, I often had the privilege of handing out Christmas bonus checks. And uh, other times, I would hand out regular paychecks and things to people. But but particularly, I remember at, at, when I would hand out Christmas bonus checks that I would walk around the office from desk to, de- to desk and hand out these bonus checks. And um, without fail, every year, many people, if not all, would say, thank you so much for this gift. As if I had something to do with it. Some of them were very, uh, w- very grateful to me for giving them this check when I had uh, nothing to do with it. I, and I would, um, I would think, you know, if it, were up, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have given you anything. But um, <laughs> that was a joke. But, but uh, I would say to them, you know, don't thank me. You need to thank Mr. Dawson for, for this gift. He's the one who decided that you would get this bonus, and all I did was write the check. And... Uh, So I love this passage of Scripture because it teaches us something very important about where our thanksgiving ought to be directed. Because many times we direct our thanksgiving to other people. And that's not completely wrong. We should give honor to whom honor is due. And there are plenty of illustrations or examples in the Scripture of Paul thanking specific people. But ultimately our thanksgiving should be directed toward God for that person and what they've done. Let me show you this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 10. Chapter 1 we'll begin in verse 2. This is the word of God. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. When we see the genuine faith of believers, then that should and ought to demand our praise, and that praise ought to be directed toward God. The genuine faith of believers demands that we praise God. And we'll see the genuine faith of the believers here in the first few verses. Look at verse 2 and 3. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. So he's thanking God for a specific reason. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind 
your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. The genuine faith of the believers in Thessalonica is seen in these three Christian virtues that Paul gives. He says, when I think of you, I think of these three things. Your, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And so Paul um, basically breaks them down in three ways. Your work, your labor, and your steadfastness. But those are connected to your, your, uh, your faith and your love and your hope. So we need to understand what this means if we want to see the genuine faith of these believers in verse 3. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Now, the word of has multiple meanings. Uh, but in order to understand what this word means, based on its usage in the Greek language, the best way I know to explain it to you is to show you another translation. And I'll just read it for you. But the New International Version says this. Instead of work of faith, it says, Your work produced by faith and your labor, instead of of, prompted by, prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. I think that's the best uh, understanding that we can have of, the, of what it means to uh, have a work of faith. That is a work that's produced by faith. So, Let's look at this first one here, this work produced by faith. There are two objects here. There, there is work and there is faith. One produces the other. Does work produce faith or does faith produce work? It is work produced by faith. So that means that faith is what produces our work. Okay? No one of us ever worked to the point where it led to our faith, right? Rather, the reverse is true. And we can affirm that because of Ephesians 2, where it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive. By His grace you have been saved. It is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. And then what does the very next verse say in chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians? It says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Okay, so that order in Ephesians chapter 2 is very important because it is God who makes us alive, regeneration, spiritually. And that brings about, when, when the Gospel comes to us, we hear it and we respond to it. That is faith, that we respond in faith. And that faith produces, verse 10, are good works. Okay, so this is what Paul's talking about. The only way that we can have any work as a believer is if we first have faith. The only way that we can have good works at all as a person is if we have faith in the true and living God. So we have this work produced by faith, and apparently this was evident in in the lives of the Thessalonians because Paul remembered them and he was grateful for their work produced by faith. The second thing that he lists is labor prompted by love. The labor of love. The labor prompted by love. Now, which one produces the other or which one prompts the other? Does the labor prompt the love or does the love prompt the labor? And it is the same thing with regard to faith. It is the love 
We have to have the love first before we can we can uh, be prompted to do any labor. And the word labor here in verse 3 is used elsewhere to mean great toil or toilsome labor. Paul is saying that this work that you've been doing, this laborious work for the sake of the Gospel, you could not do if you did not first have love. Isn't that the case as believers? That the hardest things that you have to do in the spiritual life with regard to your relationship with other people, let's say, in this church, those things cannot be done unless you first have a heart of love. Because our love is what prompts our laborious work for the sake of the Gospel. If our love is not for God and for other people, if our love is primarily for ourselves, then we will find ourselves not working. We will find ourselves not doing anything for the sake of the Gospel. So if you have a sense that you are being lazy for the sake of the Gospel, if you are being lazy for the sake of Christ's church, then it's, it's, it goes directly back to your lack of love. Because love is what prompts labor. Do you see? Faith prompts good works. Love prompts laborious labor. That's kind of redundant. Laborious work. Alright, then the third thing. Endurance inspired by hope. Endurance inspired by hope. The endurance of hope or the steadfastness of hope as it says in the New American Standard. So again, which one inspires the other? Does endurance inspire us to hope in God? Or does hope inspire us to endure? Does hope lead us to endure the difficult things in life? And based on the way that that it is written here by Paul, it is our hope that inspires us to endure. And what do they have to endure? Look at verse 6. You also have become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation. When you first received the Word, you believers in Thessalonica, you received it in much tribulation. Now, in order for us to see this, let's turn back to Acts chapter 17, I believe it is. Acts chapter 17. We looked at this last time, but it be helpful to see the persecution that they had to endure. Yes, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 17. When the Gospel first came to them in Macedonia, they, had, they received the Word with much tribulation. They received persecution as a result of of having received the Word. So Paul meets with them on three Sabbaths. It says there in verse 2. Then in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren from uh, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities and heard, uh, who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. 
What was it like in Thessalonica for them to first receive the gospel from Paul and Silas? Apparently, it was a very stressful situation because the government authorities came in and said that you're housing these uh, these people who are defiant to the Roman government. And so apparently Jason is an early convert of the Apostle Paul and Silas in this city. And perhaps even in our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you can turn back there, perhaps Jason is still a member of the church and some of these other brethren who were dragged off by the authorities. And Paul says, the reason I know that you have genuine hope in God is because it inspired you to endure. You had to receive the Word in much tribulation. And the only reason that you could do that, the only reason that you could endure despite the trials that you faced, was because of your genuine hope in God. Christ was at work in these people. And the reason that they could have such fortitude, such such a solid foundation so early in their Christian lives, because of their union with Christ. The same union with Christ that we enjoy as believers. That, that is that Christ doesn't work on us from outside of us, changing us bit by bit, but rather He changes us from the inside out. He changes us from our heart, from our thoughts. And as we change our thoughts, how we think about ourselves and how we think about, about God, it changes how we act, doesn't it? And this guaranteed change comes about as a result of our union with Christ. That we are united with Christ in His death. And so that we have died to sin. Just as Christ died to sin, we died to sin. That is, sin is not our master because Christ has paid for our sin. He has bought us out of slavery to sin. But our our union with Christ means, yes, we've died to sin, but also that we live to righteousness. That is, when Christ lived a perfect life of righteousness, it it was as if we were living that perfect life of righteousness in the presence of God. So that every act of righteousness that Christ did on this earth was credited to your account. So that when Christ, when God sees you, He sees you as a as uh, accepted before Him, justified. That's called positive righteousness. Now, what does that mean for us today? It doesn't mean that everything we do is right. It means that everything right that we do is because of our union with Christ. Everything that we do that is right is because Christ lived a perfect life before us. That our faith And our love and our hope, they are empowered by the very Spirit of Jesus who lives inside of us. And when He produces in us that faith and that love and that hope, it leads to the very same things that it it led to in Thessalonians. And that is good works, hard toil for the sake of the Gospel, and endurance despite great tribulation. Do you see the Spirit of God working in you in that way? Do you see the Spirit of God changing you day by day to be more like Jesus Christ? 
Or are you becoming more indifferent, more apathetic towards the things of God? The Spirit of God, when He is given to us as a pledge, as a down payment, He guarantees that we will become perfect. Not in this lifetime, but in the next. But but in this lifetime, we'll become more and more perfect. That will that will become more and more like Jesus Christ. So, Paul sees this genuine faith in these believers. And it's, it's laid out for us there in verse 3, but then he explains it further. And he says that their faith comes from their divine election. That is, by God's choosing of them. Verses 4-10. through 10. And I'll show you this here in, in the verses, and I think this covers the rest of the passage that we're going to look at. Paul was confident in their election by God, their choice by God, because of their initial reception of the Gospel. Verse 4. Paul was confident in their election because of their initial reception of the Gospel. Verse 4 reads, Knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. Paul gives us... Uh, the, the these three phrases in verse 4 that are all refer to an elect person, a chosen person of God. He says that they are brethren. See, knowing brethren. And then beloved by God. And then thirdly and most clearly, His choice of you. The Greek word translated choice there is used only six other times in the New Testament. And every time this word is used in the Greek language, It refers to God's choosing of a person to salvation. And so what Paul is laying out for us here is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is God's choosing of a person before they were born. This is what theologians call election. And what it means is that God, before the foundation of the world, chose every single believer. He chose them to salvation not on the basis of what they would do. He doesn't look down the corridors of time and say, hmm, looks like they're going to believe, so I'll choose them. No. What does it it say that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins? That we were dead. We couldn't do anything to bring ourselves to God. God had to make us alive. And He only makes alive those who are chosen of Him, those who are elect. It was on the basis of His free choice. Now, perhaps you're thinking, that is a cruel doctrine. That is a cruel doctrine that God will only choose some and that would mean that He doesn't choose others and that all those people are going to be condemned? But let me give you two reasons from the text why you should be comforted by the doctrine of election. Two reasons from the text why you should be comforted by the doctrine of election. That God chose believers before the world was created. First, God's choice of you is grounded in His love for you. God's choice of you is grounded in His love for you. If you are chosen of God, it means that God has a special, loyal love for you that cannot be removed. Look at verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God. You are loved by God. If He has chosen you, you are loved by God in a special way. And He has a special, loyal love for you that cannot be removed. Not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not things present or things to come, nor any created thing 
or height or depth can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so, if God has chosen you, it is grounded in His love for you. Now maybe you're thinking, that's a problem because how am I supposed to know who is chosen and who is not? And that leads me to the second reason that we should be comforted by the doctrine of election according to this text. First is God's choice of you shows His love for you. Second is we can know if someone is chosen of God. Verses 5-10. through 10. Notice the first words, the first word in verse 5. Okay, he just gets done talking about election and he continues his thought in verse 5 with the word for. Okay, so we need to... We need to perk up our ears here because Paul is saying that the reason I know that God chose you is because of what I'm going to say in verses 5 through 10. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, Paul is saying, I know that God has chose you because of your faith. I see your faith. So let me put it to you this way. Every person who expresses genuine saving faith is chosen by God. You see a person who expresses genuine saving faith, you can know if they're elect or not. Because only those who are chosen of God, verse 4, express their faith in God. Express genuine faith in God. Now this is comforting because not because we know the eternal plan of God, but because we can see God's plan unfold right before us, can't we? When we see a person come to saving faith and express themselves in genuine faith, we see their work of, that, that is produced by faith. And we see their labor that's prompted by love. And we see their endurance that is inspired by hope. We know that they have been chosen of God. We start to see God's plan unfold right before us, that the people whom God had chosen long before the world was ever created are now now starting to express their genuine faith in God. And so Paul was confident in their election because of their initial reception of the gospel. Paul, secondly, was confident in their election election because of how the gospel was presented, verse five how the gospel was presented. It was presented with great power. It did not come, verse 5, in, to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. Hey, Paul says, I know that you are chosen of God because of your faith. Verses, we could say verses 2 through 4. But I know that you're chosen of God because of how the gospel was presented to you. It wasn't presented in word only. Now, what Paul is saying is not that the Word is unimportant. Remember, no one can come to Christ apart from the Word. How can they call on Him in whom they have not heard? So it has to come through the Word. But he's saying, when the Word came to you, it came to you with three great things. And he lists them for us. One, power. Two, the Holy Spirit. And three, full conviction. When the Word of God is accompanied by these first two, by power and the Holy Spirit, it will take root. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is necessary to implant the Word into our hearts. He is the one that illumines 
our minds. He illumines our minds so that we can understand the Gospel. Now, when I talk about illumination that the Spirit gives to every single believer, I'm not talking about a special revelation that He tells us something that the Bible doesn't say. This is not additional revelation. That's not what illumination is. Rather, it is a turning on the light that's illumined. It's a turning on the light in our mind. He's giving... uh, the, the certainty that the Scriptures are true. He's removing from us... Do you realize you have a natural hostility towards the things of God? And even as believers, you, you still have a hostility towards the Scriptures and whether they are true or not. And the Holy Spirit removes those things so that when you are confronted with the Scriptures, you see them as true and you remove your hostility towards them. And so Paul's saying that's exactly how the Gospel came to you. It didn't come just with empty words, but words that were accompanied by the power and the Holy Spirit Himself so that they could take root inside of you, so that your minds could be illumined. And then thirdly, with full conviction. And perhaps that phrase is not very helpful, and and instead I I, I, I like the King James Version here where it says, in much assurance. That's the idea. It's a a deep conviction, much assurance that he, when the gospel came to you, it came to you with much assurance. You understood it to be true. You were assured of it. You're not questioning it. And it was also accompanied, Paul knew that their gospel was presented rightly because of the power of the gospel, but also because of the integrity of the preachers at the end of verse 5. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you, for your sake. That we as preachers of the Gospel to you had integrity when we gave it to you. We're not trying to get any name for ourselves, And so it came purely to you. And so it t- took root. So Paul was confident in their election and their choice that, that God had chosen them because of their faith, because of how the Gospel was presented to them. And then thirdly, Paul was confident in their election because of their response to the Gospel. Because of their response to the Gospel. Look at verse 6. Okay, he He's continuing the thought here from verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you for our Gospel. Verse 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You were imitators of us. And of the Lord, despite the deep persecution that you experienced, you endured. You became imitators of us who have done the same thing. And their lives reflected the work of Christ. So they became imitators. And and they became such good imitators that, verses 7 and 8, other people imitated them. They were imitators and they were imitated. Verses 7 and 8. Notice, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Everywhere that the word of God has reached in your area, it's taken root and people were told about your faith. And they saw it played out in your lives. So you are a testimony to what it means to be a real Christian. So that not only are you imitating us and the Lord, but but you're being imitated by other new believers. 
And this to Paul was an evidence that they had been chosen by God, that they have that they were elect. Paul sees in verses nine through nine through ten their genuine conversion. Their genuine conversion. In verse nine we see their repentance, their genuine repentance. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, these people who are mimicking you or seeing you as an example, they report to us about it. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This here in verse 9, I think, is the best biblical description that we have of genuine biblical repentance. It is turning to God away from idols. We turn to God away from idols. We turn away from idols to the living and true God. Now, it was clear that these people in Thessalonica had done this at one time in their lives. But do you know that repentance is not a one-time act? That we don't just repent of our sin one time. That we turn from our idols to God one time, but it is a continual act. Yes, we do do it initially. And there is that requirement in order for a person to be saved. But repentance ought to be our way of life. When you repented of your sin at salvation, that didn't mean that you forever forsook all sins. That that didn't mean that you would never sin again. I hope you see that in your life, that there is ongoing sin that needs to be corrected. And there's new sins that come up that need to be corrected. But when you repented of your sins, you turned away from the Master of sin. You turned away from sin having rulership over you. And now you're being led by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that you never sin, but that you are constantly turning away from sin. So that when you now sin as a believer, and you will, and you do, It doesn't feel right, does it? Because you died to your former master, sin. It no longer has mastery over you. And when you sin, you you feel a sense of disloyalty. You sense the guilt and the shame. And so, as a believer, your responsibility is to continually repent of that sin, to confess it before God, and to forsake it. Paul was confident in their election because of their genuine conversion. Of their genuine repentance here in verse 9 and then in verse 10, the second part of conversion, repentance and then faith. Verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. It was so clear to all the people who heard of the Thessalonian church, it was so clear to them that they were waiting for Christ, that the Thessalonians were waiting for Christ from heaven. This is Paul's report that he's receiving from these other believers. That these people had turned from sin, but also they're now waiting for the return of Christ. This is an expression of their hope, their faith in God. Now, what is... Paul talking about here, to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What is this wrath that Paul is talking about? Some see this as 
the great white throne judgment. That is, as believers, we'll be rescued from the wrath in the great white throne judgment. What's going to happen at the great white throne? This is the final judgment of all unbelievers on the earth. This happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to reign here for 1,000 years. And at the end of that, there will be some people who arise, and many nations apparently, that arise and try to destroy Christ and His army. And Christ will destroy them with the word of His mouth. And then all people, small and great, will be raised from the dead. All unbelievers will be raised to judgment at the great white throne judgment. And at that time, God will will judge them for their sins. And so some people suggest that this wrath that is talked about in verse 10 is that wrath. The wrath that's going to be poured out on all people at the great white throne. So the hope that we can have as believers is to be saved from that wrath at the great white throne. But I would suggest to you that it it, um, it is something else. In fact, the word the Greek word for wrath that is used here is th- used three ways in the New Testament. One is for something like what I just talked about, a judicial wrath of God, where God is going to um, judge them like it, it's used in Romans chapter 1. One of the judgments of God that comes upon people who are living on the earth is that He gives them over to their sins. This is part of how God's wrath is expressed in a person who's living on this earth. When they continually reject Him, at some point God says, you don't want what I'm offering to you, so I'm going to give you over to your sins. So it could be a judicial wrath. The second way the word wrath is used in the New Testament is as it's displayed in God judging people eternally in hell. And the third way is the wrath of God that comes at the tribulation. The wrath of God that comes at the tribulation. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Because I want you to see that the, this time period is often referred to as the great day of God's wrath. This seven-year tribulation is referred to as the great day of tribulation or the great day of God's wrath. Chapter 6, verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, as they're being judged at this time during the sixth seal that comes upon the earth, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And the implied answer is, no one can withstand the great day of God's wrath. No one can withstand the judgment of the Lamb. And so two times the word wrath is used here in verses 16 and 17 to describe the tribulation period. Now turn back to 1 Thessalonians because I would suggest to you that based on the chronology of the end time events and based on the usages of wrath throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, that this likely refers to the wrath of the tribulation. 
that Jesus, we are awaiting the coming of Jesus who rescues us from... Yes, He rescues us from the final judgment, great white throne, that's true. Yes, He rescues us from eternal hellfire. But when the Scriptures say wrath to come, it's often referring to the tribulation. And I would suggest that's what's going on here. That that Christ promises to rescue you from the tribulation. Now, how can He do that? How can He promise to rescue us from the tribulation? And if you know your end times theology, you know that the way that Christ is doing that is through what is known as the rapture, where Christ comes and, and brings His church up to heaven and protects them from the wrath to come. From the wrath that's going to be poured out on the earth. Now you say, what about all those believers that during the tribulation period, how come He's not saving them from the wrath to come? And I would suggest to you that this is a promise for what group of people? This is a promise given to the church. This is a promise given to the church. And so those people during the tribulation will be spared in one sense from final wrath, but they won't be spared from tribulation wrath. But we will be. So that if Christ comes during our lifetime, we don't have to fear that He'll come in judgment like He will when He returns bodily to the earth. But we can be confident that Christ will come. If if Christ comes in our lifetime, He will come to rapture us home, to take us home to be with Him, to protect His bride, the church until His wrath has been poured out on the earth. And so what Paul is confident in with regard to these believers is that they have been chosen by God because of their faith, verses 2-4, through because of the way that the Gospel was presented to them, verse 5, and because of their genuine faith, how it was expressed, how they were imitating Paul and the Lord and how they were being imitated and how they were showing their genuine conversion in the way that they lived by repenting, verse 9, and believing, by waiting, by hoping in the return of Christ. Alright, so all of these things Paul is confident in. Now what I want you to show uh, what I want you to show you is I think the main point of the text. That when we see the genuine faith of believers it ought to demand our praise directed toward God. And this is important where it's directed. Look at verse 2. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Then he talks about their faith, how it's expressed, how it was received, and so on. When Paul thinks about the faith of other believers, his immediate response and his constant response. Notice it says always. And he's constantly giving, that's the idea of constantly, he's constantly giving thanks to God for their faith and he tells them he is. Paul doesn't thank them for their faith. He doesn't say thank you for being such faithful people. Thank you for your hard work that's generated by your love. Thank you for your uh, your endurance. No, he thanks God and he tells them about it. He says, I want to tell you that I'm giving thanks to God for you, for your faith. Now, as I said at the beginning, it's not wrong to give thanks to a person. 
Paul does it in Romans 16, 3 and 4. But our thanksgiving giving should primarily be directed toward God. Just, long, just like I would say, it's not wrong to pray for physical things. We should pray for physical things because God's in control of all of those. But if that's all we pray for, then we're missing the biggest part of our lives as Christians. That is the spiritual realm. That is the primary thing for which we should be praying is spiritual things. Because these physical things will all pass away. And these physical things are really just a part of what God is doing. And so, in the same way, I would suggest to you that it's not wrong to give thanks to a person individually or directly. Tell them thank you for your service or thank you for or for whatever. But rather, the primary way that we should speak to people is, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. And then we actually should do that. We shouldn't just say that, but we should actually do that. I thank God for your faith. The way that it's expressed in this church. The way that it's expressed in your family if you have believers. And notice who He gives thanks for in verse 2. We give thanks to God always, so constantly, for all of you. He doesn't give thanks for the spiritual superstars only, right? the who's who among Thessalonian Christians, but for all believers, even the ones who may be a little different, a little lagging behind spiritually, but He sees in them as a whole a genuine faith. And he says, I thank God for all of you, no matter where you are in your spiritual life. I thank God. So let me leave you with three questions that touch on the application from this passage. Number one, are you like Thessalonians? Are you characterized by faith, love, and hope? Are you characterized by faith, love, and hope? Or, or let me put it another way. Is God the object of of great praise by other people because of your faith. Do other people thank God for you because of your faith? Do other people thank God for you because of your love? Or for your hope? Does anyone have reason to give God thanks for your faithfulness to Him? Or have you become so unconcerned about spiritual things People are constantly praying that you would actually express genuine faith. See, because true believers are going to do good works that are driven by genuine faith. True believers are going to do laborious work, difficult, hard-trotting type of work, which is prompted by their love. And true believers are going to endure amidst much much persecution because of their genuine hope. But if those things are not being expressed in you, and if people are not giving thanks to God for you, then then are you expressing those things? Are are you are you expressing your genuine faith and love and hope in God? Do people have reason to give God thanks for your faithfulness? Are you characterized by those things? Secondly, do reports go out about your faith? Is our faith in God worthy of being imitated? 
Or if somebody came to Christ, new believer, would we encourage them to look at somebody else's life? Maybe you need to see someone else in my church. Maybe you need to see someone else in, some, in, in another church. Don't look at me. I've got lots of problems and I'm way behind. Your reports go out about your faith. Are you enduring trial or are you giving up? Is our faith worthy of being imitated? And then number three. To whom do we give thanks when we see genuine faith? Do we thank God for one another? What is the way in which you generally pray for other people by name in this church? Is it constantly of asking for them to, you know, you know, for you to be at peace with them or for them to stop being so annoying or for them to to to, to really button this area of their life up? Or do you see evidence of faith in their life and you thank God for them? You know, one of the, the things that describes a person who is an, uh, an unbeliever is that they're ungrateful. That, that hell will be full of ungrateful people. And that doesn't mean that we go around and just thank, thank you, thank you, thank you, every one of you. But go to God and say, thank you for the people that you're using in my life to change me, to help me to grow. And then I think it would be helpful to Tell them, like Paul does here, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. We ought to be characterized by genuine faith. We ought to have faith that's worthy of being imitated. And when we see genuine faith in other people, even the smallest expressions of it, then we ought to thank God for it for that person. Let's pray.